This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. Joining me this week for the very last episode of IRCB, question mark, the Grim Reaper and the Void Space Beyond All Time and Space, Paul Jaceley. Hello, humanoids. And Nick White. This is it. <laughs> this is the last episode of I Read Comic Books. This is episode 333. I made a joke at some time in the what past. Joke? Listen, I made an, <laughs> I made some sort of comment way back I don't know, long-time listeners of the show would know that I said 333 was going to be the end of IRCB. We're going to see what happens today. But one thing I will say before we get into things, uh, that we have a hangout coming up on J- June 18, this upcoming Saturday. If you're listening when this episode comes out, it's going to be kind of a wrap party for the show. So make sure to bring champagne and a hot dog, dress up in a nice suit, even if it's just to wear a suit jacket or like a nice dress or whatever above what your camera can see. We don't care what you're wearing as far as pants are concerned because it's all going to be digital. It's going to be hanging out on Discord. So but- make sure you're there. 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on June 18. We'd love to hang out with you and chat about comics and all sorts of other things. Nick, what were you going to interrupt? Yeah, I mean, please, please dress up. (laughs) You know, even as the Titanic was going underneath the water, I'm sure you've all seen, (laughs) everybody at least put on their nice clothes and they sat out on the deck as the band played. And we'd like to really recreate that feeling. Like, that's... yes. Maybe not like the third deck where everybody was like trapped in the room and crying because that's like a downer thing. And we don't want to really yeah. like bring that. Right. Don't don't bring that energy to the this event, please. Yeah, we're definitely going to have a live band who's going to go down on a ship. We're going to yeah. be broadcasting that live. <laughs> I, there's a lake a couple miles from my house. We're going to I'm going to show that I'm going to go there and film. It's going to be a whole big ordeal. Uh, yes. Erin in the chat said she's going to wear her best tiara. I really appreciate that's the kind of energy we want for our hangout on the 18th. So make sure you're there. Until then, though, let's talk about comics because we're here for a couple of things. And two of those things are the questions that I have to ask legally mandated by this show for hundreds of episodes now. And that's how have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Nick. Uh, You know, things have been good. Uh, West Michigan Weather Watch. Things have been cold. Uh, I should have known this would happen. I, I sort of brought this upon myself and I suppose... Western Michigan, um, a couple days ago, I was like, gosh, like the AC in my office is just, it's just coming into the room too weak and it's in a weird spot on the floor. So I was like, I'm going to buy one of those. They're not called fans. They're called air recirculators. And so I, I did my research and I read way too many articles on wire cutter, which was um, maybe an issue. And I mm-hmm. bought one and then literally two out of the three days since I've, I've, had to debate whether or not I'm going to turn on the heat just because it really hasn't been um, that cold. So I'm sorry. It should everyone. be like a song that goes along with this, like life in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the fan, the fan, sorry, it's not a fan. It's an air recirculator. Uh, the mm-hmm. air recirculator sits in its cardboard box. So um, I'm very excited. Didn't think I would say this. I'm very excited for it to get unbearably hot. So I can uh, be like, that was not a waste. So um, (laughs) extraneous uh, purchases aside, uh, I have gotten a chance to read some comics. Uh, Danny says it's 96. Holy shit. Uh, Wow. They don't have humidity in in Texas. So let's ignore it. He's probably got it real easy. It's probably not a problem. So here, here is some things I've been reading. Uh, I did read the last three issues of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin. 
uh, story by Kevin Eastman, Peter Laird, and Tom Waltz. Script by Eastman and Waltz. Layouts by Eastman. Pencils by Esau and Isaac Escorza, Ben Bishop and Kevin Eastman. Colors by Luis Antonio Delgado. Letters by Sean Lee. I'm really happy that I didn't actually read this when it was rolling out in singles because it was only after I was getting through some of this that I was doing a little research and I found out that uh, this was one of those things where issue one came out in October of 2020 and the fifth issue didn't roll out until April of 2022. So uh, it was one of those uh, really long wait sort of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that said, I I think it might've been worth the wait. I still can't believe reading it with that much of a gap between them, but they are oversized issues and it really is like collaborative art at its finest. I know when I was talking about issues one and two, I think there was kind of a discussion of like, what's the barrier to entry with this book? Uh, can anybody pick it up? And and I think really for the most part, you can having finished it now. There's a little mileage for maybe if you've gotten through the first uh, first three to four volumes of the IDW 2012 reboot, but you're not going to be lost. Like, do you know who the four turtles are? Do you know who their rat dad is? Uh, their violent human friend who beats up people with the contents of a Dick Sporting Goods and their other <laughs> human friend who used to be a reporter but is now a scientist? Like, do you know those characters? Uh, you you will be fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, like absolutely amazing art. Bishop's art sequence at the end is just an amazing way to end the series. It's such an ambitious book. It doesn't take an easy way out with with the ending, and I don't want to get into that, at least not at this moment. And it sort of dabbles with this question you sort of see in other works who choose to tell a narrative like <laughs> several decades out from current canon, where it's like, uh, could this really happen? Might this really happen? Or is this like a thing where they're like, yeah, it's canon, but also it's like 40 years from now. So Listen, like, if you want to say Marvel 2099, just say Marvel 2099. Oh, that- okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Right. And it's, I, I really enjoyed it. I think it does. I think people who look at it just sort of casually can sort of say, Oh, is this like another, Dark Knight Rises, where you like throw things into a dark and gritty, far flung future where where Michelangelo says fuck and 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 kills people, (laughs) and like, do I have the patience or mileage for something like that? And while there is a little of that, and there are some faint like, I'm gonna make this character gritty and they're gonna do all the bad things now there's like a little of that but it doesn't it isn't over the top it doesn't have what i call hbo season one syndrome where it's like now i can do all the bad things and so i'm gonna do all the bad things Mm -hmm. and it's gonna be bad there's a little of that but honestly it's not overwhelming it stays true to the characters it's so ambitious and if anything else just on a simply aesthetic level, getting Kevin Eastman drawing Ninja Turtles is such a treat um, mm. that that alone is is worth it. Um, 
Yeah, I, I was at the comic shop yesterday and I saw a cover for, I think, the last issue that he did. And I was like, his art is very different than yes. modern. It's Tur- very art. different. But at the same time, I can you still feel that like originality of the turtles like the big just clunky thick lined characters that were in the original run of the book and it feels it feels nice to see that in contrast to some of the modern stuff um even if it is very very different yeah absolutely um so can't can't recommend that enough it's it's really ambitious it's such a great collaboration and getting able to like being able to sit down now and just take it all in, 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 in one go is uh, obviously a much easier way to handle that mm-hmm. than <laughs> months and months of waiting. Uh, I also read new burn. I've got one and two. I think I actually ended up reading a couple more just cause it was so good. Uh, this is from image comics. You've got chip Zdarsky uh, uh, writing and Nadia Shamas, who's writing the B story. You've got Jacob Phillips uh, drawing the main story with Zayed Yusuf Ayub drawing the B story. Sorry about the names, everyone. And Frank, oh boy. Oof. Uh, <laughs> just try it. Just try it. Sound it out. <laughs> just try it. Just <laughs> kill it. Frank Chvetkovic, Chvetkovic on the B story. It's really weird that this book is sort of closing in on a double issue digit count at this point, and I'm really only hearing about it now. And I don't know why that is. Uh, you would think that a book being written by Chip Zdarsky and drawn by rising superstar Jake Phillips wouldn't go really so unheralded, but maybe I've just been living under a rock. Who knows? It's really interesting that like whether Phillips is coloring his dad's work on pulp or, you know, helming pencil duties on that Texas blood or Newburn. Phillips always ends up depicting grizzled senior citizens that have found themselves in over their heads. <laughs> <laughs> I found that there's a type. He's got a type. Well, I mean, to his in his defense, that's also his dad's shtick. So like, yeah. you know, like father, yeah. like son kind of, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, it's... It's it's I, I guess it's fair only, you know, senior citizens deserve the right to be as overwhelmed and frazzled as the rest of us. And sure. I guess if I said anything else, otherwise, that would be ageist. So this sounds like apologetics for Indiana Jones five now. And I'm not here to defend that movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'll just briefly discuss Newburn. You've got this aging fellow. He used to be a cop. Now he's gone private detective. But unlike most private detectives where they just sit in that office and you see it, you know, parodied in film noir all the time where like it's just dimly lit. And then one person like like, some lady walks in and and the the narration's like, this is the first client I've had in three years. And I'm like, how 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 is the overhead work for you in this business? (laughs) Um, No, with 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 um, with Newburn business is freaking booming. And it's booming because he's like the mob's go-to investigator. And I don't just mean like the Italian mob, like them, the triads, everybody, like everybody hires him. (laughs) It's very weird. Everyone hires him to investigate the crimes that these other (laughs) criminal organizations perpetuate against them. And like one of the only consistent rules amongst all, amongst all of these groups is that nobody can harm Newburn, 
it's yeah he's weird. a he's a neutral party it's yeah it's a it's a really fun premise for a comic because <laughs> it takes that idea of a crime book and kind of flips it on its head where the justice isn't necessarily like you know the police are out to get or it takes the police procedural and instead of being it like the police are right and the state is right instead newburn's like yeah so like police are fucked and i am going to solve these problems for people who can't go to the police when they have problems right. uh it's it's a really interesting thing i think zadarsky is really subtle about the way he writes this kind of true justice exists beyond the rules and laws of the state um storyline i i, I to, to me that is one of the more attractive pieces of this story yeah i i think the big piece for me that has really driven me through this book is just like what is the end game? Like, obviously, he's he's solving these issues and cases for different organizations. But and I think towards like the fourth issue, you see the police sort of start like trying to rope him in to work for them. And and there you sort of sort of start to see things get a little bit more interesting. There is a B story plot. I am waiting for the B story plot to like eventually collide with the A story plot. And I think that's one of the more other interesting narrative points is that you know maybe i'll be wrong but i think at some point they're going to collide and the b plot by nadia shamas uh basically surrounds the aftermath of a jewelry store robbery and some of the people involved with that but Mm -hmm. i do not know i i don't think they've even overtly at the point that i'm at have even said like oh these things are happening in the same city or even shown us a character that overlaps between the two narratives you just have these two very distinct narratives and like again like the brain inherently wants to make connections right like at some point where is the connection where is the overlap going to be and maybe i'm maybe it's happened and i'm just not there yet but the art by zayed yusuf ayub is just absolutely fantastic it's super stylized in the b story and it's a really fun and interesting shift from phillips work um i know artists love being compared to other artists that's a joke everybody uh but it does feel <laughs> like the work is somewhere like a weird middle ground between juni ba and rich tomaso which is huh. super cool i like it so i can't recommend that book enough i'll also just briefly say I did read the first two issues of the, the British Paranormal Society. This is by Chris Roberson, uh, written by Chris Roberson, pencils by Andrea Moody, uh, colors by Lee Lowridge, letters by Clem Robbins. Somehow Dave Stewart is not working on a Mike Mignola book again. So strange. Uh-oh. Dave, are you okay? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Dave, I see you haven't eaten all of your coloring duties. Are you okay? Um, that's a meme for the TikTok kids. I'm still with it, everybody. Thank Trust you. me. Um, Thank you. And this just follows Simon Brutenholm, who's the uncle of Trevor Brutenholm, who's the adopted father of Hellboy. Everybody knows this stuff, right? Everybody knows this. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. This is common knowledge. This is like the sky is blue. The grass is green. Simon right. Brutenholm is the uncle of Trevor Brutenholm. Please come yes. on. Everybody knows this. Yes. And Simon, we met him in the Silver Lantern Club, which was a recent Hellboy miniseries. And this series follows him and another character named Honora Grant who we also previously met when the two of them collaborated in Witchfinder. Again, this is Tales Old as Time. Everybody knows these things. And <laughs> they end up in this quaint little uh, English city called Noxton to investigate some weird rituals that they do. And maybe the city is a little too quaint. Maybe their weird summer solstice celebrations are a little cultish. 
I mean, we've all seen Hot Fuzz. Uh, when the when a little British city is maybe a little too quaint, you are right to question what's going on, and that's basically the premise here. Uh, Moody is a great artist. The end. Get get in on this book. I'm enjoying it. Uh, what about you, Paul? What have you been reading? Uh, is it uh, is it uh, the British Paranormal Society? Because, like I said, I mean, I know that everyone, all right. <laughs> okay. everyone's uh... well versed in Hellboy lore. <laughs> Uh, well, um, when you start so- talking about quaint English villages, I just think about um, uh, the Wicker Man. So that's kind of my oh, yeah, for the, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I guess I did put that in my notes. I wrote, oh gosh, what was that villages that seem to be a little too quaint, and mm-hmm. uh, also engage in practices that have Nicolas Cage donning a bear costume and shouting how <laughs> things got burned. So clearly, you and I Perfect. are on the same the same, same wavelength. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So how did uh, it get burned? No. Uh, no, I did not, uh, did not read that. Sorry. But, um, <laughs> I did, um, anyone that's been listening to the podcast, uh, knows that two of my favorite things to talk about are Batman and Judge Dredd. So mm. I decided to kill two birds with one stone this week. And I read two of the Batman and Judge Dredd crossovers from the nineties. Um, I read Batman and Judge Dredd Judgment on Gotham. It's from 91. Uh, it's written by Alan Grant and John Wagner art by Simon Bisley and letters by Todd Klein. Uh, that story is, um, you know, the typical story that everyone knows where uh, Judge Death has escaped his containment unit in Mega City One with the help of Mean Machine Angel. He's transported to Gotham City. Um, and while investigating this, Batman gets basically transferred to Mega City One. They basically swap places. There's a great moment where Judge Dredd basically picks up Batman, you know, arrests him. And uh, you want them to team up right away. But of course, Judge Dredd realizes that Batman is a vigilante. And it's like, well, that's 12 years nice. So Cube's right there uh, for being a vigilante. And Batman's like, no, there's like a monster in Gotham that's killing everybody. You need to help me. And, uh, you know, uh, Batman, of course, punches Judge Dredd in the helmet. And of course, that's 10 years for uh, assaulting an officer. In the life of Cubes. And then Batman punches him again and says, make it 20. It's, it's a great moment. Um, oh, it's exactly man. what you want from a Judge Dredd Batman crossover. Meanwhile, in Gotham, uh, Judge Death teams up with the Scarecrow and they uh, begin basically having a murderous rampage through Gotham that ends up at a heavy metal concert. Um, And there's a (laughs) moment where Judge Death is like storming the stage while the band is playing and he's got a guitar and he's like playing the guitar and he begins singing a song that's obviously supposed to be a parody of the Rolling Stones' um, Sympathy for the Devil, but it's a him singing about himself, Judge Death. It's pretty funny. Okay. Meanwhile, Mean Machine Angel is there, and he's headbutting the stage support beams, um, and his dial gets stuck at four and a half, so he starts butting uncontrollably, and he says out loud, I'm stuck in an uncontrollable butt frenzy, which made me laugh. <laughs> so hard oh, that's what that that's what that you yeah. know I, I saw that in your notes and i was like where's paul gonna get into that line whatever that means <laughs> well he's of course everyone knows that mean machine angel is a, a world-class champion headbuttist so um right right uh it's it's a pretty ridiculous comic um eventually batman enlists the help of judge anderson they transport back to gotham judge dredd is on their tail um they are able to defeat judge death finally and mean machine angel and then there's a great moment at the end at the end where judge dread is like all right i'm glad we solved that anyway batman i got to take you back to mega city one because you have to serve time for your your crimes over there and batman's <laughs> like really come on i don't yeah. have to do that so, um t- t- tell me more about this give me the brief synopsis of this mean machine angel person because i actually don't think i know this character oh, oh he's basically um 
one of he lives uh, in the Judge Dread uh, universe. He sort of is one of the nomadic people that live in the um, what do you call it? The Cursed Earth. Uh, there's a whole yeah. family he's a part of the um, uh, the Angel Gang. Uh, basically, he's a cyborg more or less, and he has a dial on his forehead that if it turns up to f- if he's at one, he's surly. If it's two, he's really mean, and it goes way up to four. And then that's that's kind of his gimmick. So he's a great character. Okay, incredible. Um, okay, um, having having just watched you know the Judge Dredd movies, um, for some reason I'm just like <clears throat> this this is jiving really well in my brain. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's great stuff. Now, can, um, go ahead. Can can he turn the dial to wherever he wants, or does it yes. just happen? And then it's oh okay okay yeah. okay. It's not like a mood that, ring thing where it's like oh I see where you're at. Gotcha. No, he always warns you. He's like I'm at one right now. So I'm gonna turn up the two. Look out! So. Um, Amazing. Okay. Amazing. It's great stuff. It's ridiculous. Again, I I like the story. It's it's ridiculous and over the top, but it kind of works because of that. You know, the best Judge Dread stories are a little silly, and this is definitely part of that. Uh, I think mm-hmm. Simon Bisley's. If you know Simon Bisley's artwork, it's just so over the top and ridiculous. Um, he's best known for doing the covers for Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol issues. He did a bunch of Lobo books in the '90s. His artwork just looks violent. Like if it just it could just yeah. be Batman standing there, and it looks like so violent and like over the top and ridiculous. It, it's definitely fits the tone of the story. Um, yeah, Bisley awesome. isn't always my cup of tea, but like it feels like. It feels like he was born to draw a heavy metal cover. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, albums, yeah. you know. For sure. Um, and that definitely fits the mood of that, oh, that story. Um, the other one I read was uh, Judge Dredd and Batman, The Ultimate Riddle. It's again written by Grant and Wagner with art this time by Carl Critchlow and Dermot Power. Uh, letters by Richard Starkings. This came out in 1995. This is that, you know, that again, that tale is old as time where a despotic ruler of a planet or another dimension uh, steals the warriors, the best warriors from across the galaxy and makes them fight for their entertainment. We've all read that story before. Right. It's a tried and true yeah, trope. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Batman and Judge Dredd are two of the people that are summoned there. So the whole gimmick is like Batman is the the prey and the rest of the you know, famous hunters and killers from around the galaxy have to find Batman. Uh, Batman and Judge Dredd end up sort of teaming up because they remember each other from the previous story uh, that they <laughs> team up that they had. And then, uh, nice. you know, it's basically the story. A lot of the story is like these big fight scenes between them and these other people that are trying to kill Batman. And there's always this back and forth where Batman's like, doesn't want to kill anybody, but Judge Dredd has no problem killing everybody. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. so they kind of butt heads uh, again. Headbutting uh, is a theme. They butt heads over that. <laughs> It turns out that the Riddler was kind of behind the whole thing. Um, the ending of this is kind of underwhelming. It's a again, it's ridiculous, but not in the sort of fun way that the previous story was ridiculous and and fun. Um, hmm. It's so you know, it's so I still enjoyed it. I think Critchlow and Dermot, their artwork, or sorry, um, Critchlow and Power, their painterly art style is kind of like a toned down version of Bisley. Like it looks visually hmm. similar right up front, but it doesn't have that sort of tongue-in-cheek over the topness of Bisley's art that makes the other story work better for me but anyway these are two books you know i picked up out of the dollar are the uh, back issue bins in my local shop recently and uh it was a pretty fun trip down memory lane or trip to uh the early 90s when you had uh an, <laughs> oh, no. an attempt to make judge dread popular in, in the united states so there you go yeah i'm kind of surprised that dc let grant and wagner take the reins narratively i think that's sort of interesting because based on well, what you're saying yeah they let them basically it was more of like a Judge Dread themed book 
that incorporated mm-hmm. the two as opposed to the reverse. I mean, tell me well, if I'm wrong, but uh, yeah, just keep in mind that uh, so Alan Grant was actually writing Batman at this time. So Alan Grant had a pretty long run on Batman in the 90s. So right, right, right. Um, he was already writing Batman, and just, I don't think Wagner ever really worked for DC for a long run. He did a few one-off stories here and there. So the fact that he could just get the ba- main Batman, one of the main Batman writers, Alan Grant, who'd already worked on Judge Dredd with Wagner, that kind of worked in their their favor that way. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 And then the other thing I read, which I'm going to sort of table my thoughts on for now, because I know Mike and I both want to rave about it. I read uh, yes. Aquaman Andromeda, number one fantastic book that's written by Ram V, art by Christian Ward, and letters by Aditya Bideker. Uh It's a great book, but like I said, I want to wait to hear Mike's thoughts before I get too much deeper into it. Yeah, I uh, we'll talk about that in a second. I guess for me, I have been, uh, I've been slightly busy. I've been, had some friends over to see my new house, a couple people just to, that I hadn't seen in a few months. Um, and so we made, you know, big dinner last night. And then this morning I woke up extra early so I could go walk around and play Pokemon Go because I'm a huge nerd and I'm not afraid to talk about it anymore. Ooh, hot take, hot take. <laughs> Finally. Uh, I did go to the comic shop yesterday and then I saw that they were missing a bunch of one-off random volumes of things that I had had my eye on. And so then I drove over to a Barnes & Noble and grabbed some of the books that I could find uh, because I knew the nearest comic shop after that was like 40 miles away and I wasn't going to drive that. But a Barnes & Noble was right around the corner. So I picked up a whole bunch of like first volumes of things like Spy X Family, Blue Flag, uh, Doro Hidoro, uh, and some other stuff. Squad, because everyone on the show has been re- reading that book and raving about it. So I figured I'd grab that too. Uh, so it was a nice comic haul day, uh, plus the final volume of Chainsaw Man Volume 11. A lot of manga in my life, apparently. Uh, but that was what I, I, I went to go grab. But on top of that, I did read a bunch of comics. Uh, and I do want to talk about my two like top-ranked books that I read this past week. Uh, the first one being Time Before Time, number 13. Uh, this is written only by Rory McConville with art by Ron Salas. Uh, this seems to be the beginning of like a one-off, one-off arc, and I really, really, really loved it. Kind of surprised to see that Declan Shelby is not the co-writer on this issue. Um, but, you know, so be it. Maybe Shelby's off doing his new book, and so he's like, here, Rory, you can have this book for now. Uh, or maybe Rory's just writing this one arc or something but this issue if you haven't been reading things minor spoilers for what's kind of happening in in time before time but i'll try to step around more specific things but this issue begins a story following a time traveling bounty hunter who's been hired to find our protagonist nadia and tatsuo if you've been reading time before time you know that they are currently very hard to find Uh, I don't want to say anything about the issue because it's a really, really perfect setup um, in this new story arc that McConville's been building. And I really love how this entire series has approached the different angles to approach uh, or different angles of like telling other aspects of this story without it being just like branching off of the main characters. Instead, it's like we get the far end of a branch that leads back towards the trunk rather than going from the trunk outward. Um, And I, I really appreciate how the story the stories that they've told one-off issues and every, like every arc as it's gone on has tried to go about um, telling things in a re- weirdly circular pattern so that you don't know how it's all going to connect back to the main storyline. So you get to the last issue or so. So yeah, I really, really love this. I, I just love this book. There's something about this book that just really clicks in my head and every issue is impressive and it takes this idea of time travel and really spins it and, doesn't shy away from constant time travel, almost like Doctor Who, but in less of a whimsical fashion and more of a, if you screw this up, all of time will end. And everybody <laughs> seems to understand that in like a, a way that 
no one is going to break those rules. And I really appreciate that. It feels like a like Steins Gate. I just read that. I was talking about that recently. They set up these really hard nosed rules in the story and everyone adheres to them. And with all of those in mind, the story has like this very oddly shaped box that it needs to work inside of. Otherwise, the story won't work because as soon as it breaks its own rules, it destroys all of reality and the book no longer makes sense. So I appreciate that the team on this book has done that and they've continued to follow through on that and have found smart ways to work around harder questions in the book without it making it feel like it's just do sex machina left and right all the time, which I feel like is what Doctor Who does. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, really, really love this book. If you're not reading it, go grab the first two trades because you will be in for a treat. Yeah, it it's so it's so rare to find a time travel book that has a new take on things, that has something new to say, that doesn't inevitably fall down the rabbit hole of obsessively adding so many new rules or repeatedly breaking all of the old ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where it's like, like, come on, dude, like this is just <laughs> not like just set things up that differently. And I feel like the rules and I'm not done with arc two yet at this point, but the rules are very simple. They haven't been broken. I think they really allow for some creative storytelling uh yeah uh paul if you haven't picked up this book i would definitely yeah i read i think the first six issues or so but it was one of those Mm -hmm. books that i had a really hard time sort of keeping track of things month to month so i'm gonna have to sit down and just read it in collection i think to really appreciate it i love the artwork and i do like the idea that as far as i could tell from the the little bit i read they really kind of approach the idea of time travel almost like like a flying where it's like you can have like the really expensive, nice brand new machine that doesn't mess up, or you can get the low right. end, you know, broken down time machine and you might not end up where you want to go. Like it's, I like that sort of practicality <laughs> yeah. of that stuff. And the, there's some the commentary whole, on, yeah. on, uh, you know, um, income inequality and stuff like that, that I kind of oh, yeah. saw as a subtext throughout the book, which I really appreciated. Man, the, the book goes, it goes even further in a lot of ways with a lot of that stuff under the surface, like just yeah. below the sur- surface of the main story, the idea of sending people back in time to live better lives, like oh. fucking destroys my brain because it's like, this is the problem, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. but I understand why they do it in the story. Like yeah. they give such brilliant context and justification for it. You're like, I guess I can't argue with it. And I, I to your point, I do think reading it in correct co- or collected edition is probably the way to go. Um, if you're if you feel like the jumping and the character stuff is a little bit harder to track, because I, I will say I went back and reread the first 12 issues. Um very recently when I got the second volume and I was like, yeah, or the first, whatever the, whatever the true first volumes cover, I re- went back and reread those and it adds so much more like amazing context when you get into those later issues. So yeah. definitely recommend it, reading it in a collection. Yeah. Uh, the other book I want to talk about really quick is Aquaman Andromeda. Number one, this is Rom V Christian Ward, Aditya uh, Bidikar, as Paul said, I, I don't know how to talk about this book without giving away <laughs> all of the things that I loved about it that are spoilers. Yeah. But I, I there's something in about a comic that is underwater suspense horror that has this idea of like the labyrinth infinite void that is the darkness underneath the ocean that just it just makes me so excited like the first handful of pages of this book i was like this is my new favorite comic of the year straight (laughs) up i think this is going to be the best thing i've read all year um that isn't the department of truth let's just be honest about that right here guys but i rom v somehow tied all things together without leaning into like the eldritch horror of a lovecraft story Mm -hmm. he he went 
he he takes this book and goes in a direction of who is Aquaman? Like, what does it actually mean to go to the bottom of the ocean? Like, the, the story is people are exploring this mysterious thing that crashed into the ocean. And Aquaman is somehow involved. But even by the end of the first issue, we don't know directly how. Uh, mm. I mean, we kind of do, but like, no spoilers. Like, it's it's very, very good. And Rom V, he continues to hint at this thing of like an unknowable, massive void um, yeah. that is in the ocean. And that is the kind of shit that I just want to talk about all day, even though I don't have the <laughs> words to describe it. And I feel like as a writer, Rom V knows how to take these ideas and describe them in ways that feel beautiful and poetic and terrifying all at once. And that's what this book is. Like, it's very auteur feeling, right? Like, there's there's so much extra writing in this book and captions that feel like poetry that you're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, for some comic readers, I don't think this is going to be their jam. But I don't know what it was, but I sat down in this book and everything clicked for me. And by the end, I was like, how can this only be three issues long? This is a crime. (laughs) (laughs) Paul, what were your thoughts on this? Uh, Yeah, I mean, you kind of nailed it there. It's um, right off the bat. It's a visually just stunning book. Christian Ward does some amazing artwork as usual. But it's kind of cool. Like uh, they're essentially drawing a parallel between the sort of unknowable you know, outer space and the equally unknowable depths of the ocean. You know, if you know anything yeah. about oceanography, it's like there's a lot of the underwater deep parts of the ocean that we've never explored or seen. And that's they draw a parallel between a, a black hole, you know, and this sort of underwater world that changes you the longer you're under there. There's all these like references to people that do underwater exploration or even Aquaman himself. Like the longer they're underwater, they start to change and that what is causing that is kind of a, a recurring question throughout the book. You mm-hmm. also get, um, a, you know, Aquaman's not really the main character in the book. A lot of the sort of voiceover perspective you're getting is from one of the uh, crew members on this uh, exploration mission named Yvette. And, you know, she has a connection to the ocean because of her father. And I won't get into that to avoid spoilers. But the idea that you're making a book that is about Aquaman, who's admittedly one of the goofier characters there is, and I like that about him, but to make a sort of like a book that combines, you know, horror and uh, sci-fi in a way and Aquaman in a way that is um, fresh and exciting, it's it's really a remarkable book. And I think, you know, it's part of the DC Black Label thing, so it's kind of its own separate Elseworlds kind of take on Aquaman, but yeah, man, I feel like even if you have no interest in Aquaman, pick this book up because it's it's very different from the character you probably have in your in your mind as what Aquaman is. And Christian Ward's design that he made for Aquaman in this book just looks yeah. cool. Like he's got it's the amazing. like coral coming off of his body, and he's like mm-hmm. he's got a way different design than you know the traditional like you know spandex whatever he normally. I don't know, it's not spandex, but like the <laughs> chainmail yeah. that he wears and stuff and the little speedo. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's very. It reminds me a lot of the. Uh, uh, the Justice League, Zack Snyder, Justice League. I, what's his name? David Momoa, Jason Momoa, yeah. um, Aquaman in the look. But it's it's even further. It's someone that lived underwater for a long time and became one with the ocean life. Right. Um, it's yeah. really, really cool. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, I the thing that this book reminded me the most of was there was a book that came out a while ago from Marvel. I can't remember who was the creative team on it, but Asad Rebic did the art and it was called Submariner the Depths. And it's about this this sub that is 
or a submarine like that is floating through an unknown part of the ocean and the submariner boards their ship underwater and they're freaking out because they don't understand why they're taking on water, what hit them, what happened. And it's this incredibly scary book um, that just, again, clicks and fires on all cylinders in terms of like really establishing terror in the depths of the ocean. And I think this book does the same thing. Um, so if you're looking for something else after you read this, because everyone should go read this, uh, <laughs> I recommend that Submariner of the Depths. It's pretty solid. Yeah. But yeah, let's uh, let's move on. Let's let's talk a little bit about comic books that we're excited to read in the near future. Comic books that are on the top of our pile, whether they're new, old books that are upcoming, whatever. So let's just dig right into things. Paul, what are you excited to read next? Uh, very briefly, I want to say because uh, Danny reminded me here in the chat that um, do a power bomb number one comes out this week. It's a wrestling comic written and drawn by Daniel mm. Warren Johnson. Obviously, yeah. I'm excited for that. So, so in lieu of me, you know going with the obvious i have something else on top of my pile this week and it's a book called putin's russia rise of a dictator um it's a book from drawn and quarterly that came out earlier this year it came out before the invasion of ukraine mm, but uh, i picked it up from the library recently and i'm kind of really obviously more excited to dig into it now um as the title suggests it's um about vladimir putin uh, who's uh notoriously private and there's really not much known about him so the the artist and writer daryl cunningham has to do a lot of deep digging and find out you know basically this person who's purposely made their life mysterious and unknowable and secret try to unpack their their past and what that says about them as a leader what says them as a dictator um I'm just flipping through the book now. It's really dense. There's a lot of information in here, but Daryl Cunningham's artwork is very simple and it's almost like he has an ability to sort of illustrate the details in a way that makes him accessible. Um, I know he's done a few other books for John and Quarterly and he's kind of bills his work as being sort of graphic journalism. So it's not so much a narrative mm -hmm. story. It's a, you know, an, a journalistic biographical piece about Vladimir Putin that happens to be illustrated, um, which might make it a little bit easier to uh, to read personally than trying to read a bunch of dense text as a normal biography. So uh, yeah, yeah, like I said, I picked up from the library recently and uh, looks uh, interesting, if not blood boiling at, at certain points. So <laughs> I'll <laughs> yeah, we'll see yeah. how, how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to hearing what you think about this because it, I, I've seen this on on shelves or suggested at Amazon or something like that. I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to read a book about Putin, yeah. uh, but <laughs> still, uh, Nick, what about you? What are you What are you excited for next? Yeah, I, I don't know if my pick is quite the uh, light reading that Paul's is, but um, <laughs> and I, I, I hope someone's heard from uh, Daryl recently because um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Given given the subject matter, he's decided to uh, dig into. Um, <clears throat> that aside, my pick is definitely uh, the Bone Orchard Mythos, uh, the Passageway. Um, this is from Image Comics. It's written by Jeff Lemire, drawn by Andrea Sorrentino, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Steve Wands. Uh, this is kind of one of those fun situations where uh, I'm recommending this book. It's coming out this week. Uh, but also, I've already read the book. Uh, <gasps> Whoa. Yeah, I know. Breaking the rules. I guess the, I think the song was breaking the law. I don't even remember yeah. who, who that's by. Paul, do you remember who that's by? Uh, that's Judas Priest, of course. 
There you go. Okay, see. So, yes, this is from the creative team of Gideon Falls and Primordial, the first book in, quote, a bold and ambitious new shared horror universe. When a geologist is sent to a remote lighthouse to investigate strange phenomenon, he finds a seemingly endless pit in the rocks. But what lurks within and how will he escape its pull? Uh, look, I'll be, I'll be honest. I know what the elephant in the room is for this book. I'm sure some people are probably not real wild about the fact that it's a, it's coming out as an $18 trade. Um, I get that. Hmm. Look, if it's in, in it's, it's not even a hundred pages, right? Nick, how are you going to sell people on this? You're not doing a very good job. Look, if you see this as a quartet of 399 issues and you're paying an extra dollar or two for the hardcover formatting, it maths out. Okay. Like (laughs) it maths out. Uh, if you're saying, but Nick, I prefer single issues because then I can sample things. Look, it's Lemire and Sorrentino, and it's Gideon Falls adjacent. Okay, now you know what you're getting into, and you probably have a pretty good idea of whether this is for you or not. All right? Right. right. Like, we're done. Buy the book. Don't be cheap. Um, or, or get it from Hoopla or whatever. Like, I get it. This book is basically a checklist of scary stuff. Okay? Are you afraid of ravens or just... Over, overly large birds? Uh, are you afraid of open water? Are you afraid of bottomless mm-hmm. pits? Are you afraid mm-hmm. of lighthouses isolated on islands surrounded by inclement weather? Are you afraid mm-hmm. of other people that choose to cohabitate on said islands with for long periods of time when they clearly could have left, but they've decided to stay there for multiple decades? What's wrong with them? Are you afraid of those people? Is like, this the lighthouse? Is this, is this <laughs> Robert Pattinson? <laughs> look, look, look. The lighthouse did not... The lighthouse is not the OG lighthouses are scary story, okay? Wow. Willem Dafoe did not invent the idea of, of solitude and inclement weather on pieces of land surrounded by water being sure. a terrifying thing. All right. Yeah, but that's the one that comes to top of mind. Therefore it is the only one that exists. So, right. <laughs> Therefore yeah. they invented it guys. Yeah, um, yeah. And everyone else is stealing, right? Everyone else who, who does anything like that is stealing. Uh, it's basically a bingo of scary shit. And in terms of what this work is about, Uh, Let me make sure I read this because I think this is probably the best way of putting this from my notes. The work is sometimes scary, sometimes confusing, and sometimes I'm scared but confused as to why. And other times I'm absolutely confused and unsure as to whether or not I should be scared. (laughs) I'm not really sure if this is a positive or a negative, uh, but it's hard to spoil a book where I'm really not sure what happened. It's creepy stuff. It's scary stuff. We know that there's 11 more volumes I think some are going to be single issues, some are going to be uh, oversized issues, some are going to be trades. Mm. Uh, We don't really know much other than that each volume is supposed to be able to be read by itself as sort of a self-contained thing with just narrative threads that lead toward the rest of it. But it definitely is terrifying. Sorrentino is not quite as trippy as we've seen him in things like Gideon Falls, but in an attempt to just draw like the more terrifying side of nature, like the waves and the water are just overwhelmingly scary. Like in, um, like in that movie with Mark Wahlberg and George Clooney and they're on that boat and everybody drowns. Uh, what's that? What? Perfect storm. Perfect what? storm. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like, it's very much water is terrifying in, in, in the vein of a perfect storm. So, uh, okay. Read this book. So- 
I don't think I'm going to now. You've, <laughs> it's too scary. You, you've, and, uh, you scared my pants off. Put, Nick. put on put on a life vest and read this book. Okay, that somehow sounds oh. scarier than uh, Vladimir Putin. So yeah, sorry, that's too <laughs> yeah. much for me. All right, yeah. your words, not mine. <laughs> yeah, well, um, let's let's just move on before uh, we start making any more lighthouse jokes. I guess before I get into my pick, uh, we've got some folks hanging out with us here on the Discord. They're wonderful people. Uh, they also have picks for this week. Kev is reading Aquaman Andromeda number one because I was so excited about it on Discord the other day um, and on Twitter. I appreciate Kevin listening to my recommendations. Uh, Jeff's reading Spy Family, chapter 23 to current. Paul G is reading May's book or rereading May's book, I should say. Aaron is rereading Hikaru no Go for the Goodreads Book of the Month challenge that we're doing, where it's our reading our re- reading or rereading our favorite comics from 2021, which is amazing. Hikaru no Go, Chef's Kiss, amazing. And Danny is reading Dual Powerbomb number one. I'm very excited to check that book out as well. But it is not my pick for this week because, as I said earlier, I went to the comic shop and then to Barnes & Noble, and I grabbed Dohori Doro Volume 1. This is by Q Hayashida. Um, I don't know if anybody has seen this, but it was a big anime on Netflix for a little bit. Uh, it features a lizard-headed man um, biting other people's heads. Uh, it's okay. it's a very crazy, wild book. It's insanely it's insane looking. There's like two worlds that people live in, and it's it's got a very complicated plot. The the art in this manga is absolutely solid. But let me just read a quick synopsis because I don't know how Please. to properly describe this book. Please. Um, <laughs> In a city so dismal, it is known only as the whole. A clan of sorcerers have been plucking people off the streets to use as guinea pigs for atrocious experiments in the black arts. In a dark alley, Nikaido found Cayman, a man with a reptile head and a bad case of amnesia. To undo the spell, they're hunting and killing the sorcerers in the hole, hoping that eventually they'll kill the right one. Because in the premise of the story, if you kill the sorcerer who cast the spell on you, the the spell is undone. But when N, the head sorcerer, gets word of a lizard man slaughtering his people, he sends a crew of cleaners into the hole, igniting a war between the two worlds. Guys, I can't express how fucking insane this comic is. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the synopsis there does not properly describe how wild this book no, is it and sounds just the, good i'm interested it's, it's awesome so yeah the thing that really hooks me on this book is like this whiplash between the goofy humor of the book and like the hyper violence of the story and mm-hmm. at no point does from what i've seen or read does it slow down and i'm all about that sometimes you just need that crazy adrenaline rush with a handful of laughs and i think that's what this book is going to be there's sure. 23 volumes of this entire series i'm probably going to buy them all because i have a feeling it's it's that good um so i'm really really excited about that so just his head is lizard that's it <laughs> just his head is a lizard and okay. he puts sorcerer he puts people's heads into his mouth inside of his mouth there is another head that comes out of his throat Whoa. and comes mm. to speak to the heads that go into his mouth what and the head inside of this lizard man's body knows what the sorcerer looks like but cannot describe what they look like to the <laughs> lizard head guys this <laughs> Manga is insane. So yeah, I'm really, really excited. Um, wow. And I feel like the more I read this, the more excited I'm going to be. <laughs> um, one thing I will say before we go into the break, Witch Hat Atelier Volume 9 comes out this week by Kamami Shirahama. You guys, Witch Hat Atelier, go read this book. It's the best best manga out there on the shelves as far as I'm concerned. But you only get one volume a year, so uh, you should get very, very excited when a new one comes out. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to 
jump into the second half talking about our favorite comic book endings because what a better topic than that to end the entire show on we're going to be talking about the end of all things we're going to be talking about our favorite comic book endings and you know it's just going to be a good time so we'll be back in just a second For our show this week, the final week uh, of Ivory Comic Books, we're going to be talking about our favorite comic book endings. Uh, Paul, Nick, and I, we went through kind of our, our catalog of comics that we've read over time, the things that came to mind when we first thought of what was the best comic book ending that we've read. So I'm just going to get this out of the way just before we get started. We're going to bring up a lot of comics and we're probably going to spoil them in some capacity. So I apologize in advance. But from the list that we have in our notes here, it doesn't seem like anything that's too recent. So, you know, if you have to pause, check the show notes. I'll put all the all the comics that we talk about in here. Check the show notes. If it's something you think we're going to spoil, pause. Go finish that thing. Finally, you've been putting it off for too many years. I know it. Go And then come back and listen to this episode. <laughs> it's, not it. it's not our fault. It's not our fault. It's your fault. And, you know, so, yeah, we're going to dig into things. Uh, I guess to get things started, you know, I, I'm curious to know from from both of you. And maybe we'll start with you, Paul. You know, like to you, what makes a good comic book ending? Like when you when you think about all the books that you've got, you know, feel free to go into your examples as yeah. well. But uh, what makes a good comic book ending for you? You know, I was when I was thinking about this topic, I kind of had two uh, approaches. Uh, if you're talking about a, a story that is has a finite, you know, definitive ending to it, like an OGN or a miniseries, like that feels like a very different type of ending than someone ending their run on an established ongoing book or character and kind of handing yeah. it off to the next creative team. There's two different approaches there. And uh, it seems like that later one's much harder to do, to have a mm -hmm. satisfying mm -hmm. conclusion to like a Batman story, knowing that someone's going to come over pick it up next and kind of just undo what you just did most of the time. <laughs> yeah, and I, right. you know, I, I say that knowing that, you know, nowadays in comics, it's way more common for books just to end or be rebooted as a new number one when the creative team ends. But, you know, that wasn't the case until, you know, pretty recently. So I have a couple of examples of both um, things. And I think the ones that are more interesting to me are the ones where you're handing off a book to someone else to continue on with these characters. And one of the best examples of that I think is Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. Um, so they ended their run on Doom Patrol with issue 63. Um, and that story we have, it basically takes place, you know, in a, in a world where crazy Jane, the character from Doom Patrol who has 64 different personalities is kind of a quote unquote healed. You know, she's seeing a therapist. She's back to her original identity as uh, Jake, uh, Kate Chalice. She's seeing a therapist. She's on medication. She has a normal quote unquote life, but she keeps having dreams about her adventures with the Doom Patrol. And then the book sort of ends with her realizing like that's her real life. Like or the her quote unquote disability is having multiple personalities or disassociative identity disorder. That's her real identity. Like that she's by trying to ignore that and become quote unquote normal, she's not living her true life. And there's a beautiful page at the end drawn by Richard Case, where you know, where mm -hmm. she kind of like steps through a door and she sees her friends, the Doom Patrol there, Robot Man and uh Rebus, that's the character name, the negative man character. Mm -hmm. Um they're all there welcoming her back to, you know, her real identity. And like, it's such a great ending. And I know, you know, the book continued on with Rachel Pollack taking over at the writing duties and they had a critically acclaimed run, but I think Morrison did a great job of kind of 
concluding their take of the Doom Patrol in a con- concise ending with that that final issue is one of my favorite single issues. I reread it uh, pretty regularly, and it it just works perfectly for me. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, Nick, what about you? When you when you think about a good comic book ending, uh, I mean, I guess Paul, I should I should comment on this sure. since I did read this issue. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember that ending feeling pretty satisfying, like wrapping everything up about you know the whole story being about Jane trying to almost escape this this problem and everyone trying to fix her, yeah. uh, quote unquote, in heavy quotes there, and you know the book kind of circling back saying like no, like the eccentricities that make you who you are are who you are, right? Mm-hmm. Like you shouldn't try to suppress them and you know ignore them just because society again in heavy quotes um says that you're not normal like i I do appreciate that that type of ending and given the the craziness that happens throughout that whole doom patrol run where it feels like there are so many characters that are trying to fix something about themselves with with some exceptions um it's interesting to see that that is kind of the final conclusion of the book and it's it's positive despite all of the insanity that happens in that (laughs) storyline yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, Nick, what what about you? What's what's a what makes a good comic book ending for you? I mean, I, I think one one thing that really I mean, it seems obvious, but just tonally having an ending that makes sense and is consistent with the rest of the book that um, maybe doesn't succumb to any sort of like editorial pressure uh, or anything like that to to be something that it's not. And I think a really good book and I just don't try to I mean who am I kidding? Like I'll, 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 I'll put this book on every list. Like if anyone like puts like a best fantasy book or best like nonfiction memoir, I'll still try to nominate aliens dead orbit. I'll, I'll, st- <laughs> <laughs> I'll still- okay. All right. Consistently on brand. I best, appreciate that. Best contemporary romance novel, uh, uh-huh. aliens dead orbit. Uh, <laughs> but I really, and again, this is by James Stokoe, uh, everything done by James Stokoe. Uh, from Dark Horse. I, I really like this book because the ending is resoundingly grim. It is resoundingly dark, but there's also something darkly empowering as you have this character whose name I cannot remember, but basically sacrifices himself to just blow up this whole station um, with with aliens on board. And I think it's easy and tempting to look at like the alien universe and go like, well, you know, shouldn't every story have a Ripley that survives amidst everything else and kills everybody and, you know, rises from the ashes and becomes this hero. And I think some of us who are aliens fans look at Ripley and go, you know what? Ripley is just really, really lucky. And Ripley is the outlier. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Ripley is this weird, strange, uncommon individual who somehow is making it through all of this and that's not what it would be like for most people um and so uh stoko basically sticking to his guns and and being like yeah uh, it's not always like that for everybody and Mm -hmm. and having this ending where this character is just sitting there like smoking his last few cigarettes as like the life support systems go out you're like this kind of sucks, but also this feels right for mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. story. And some people might have not liked it, but it felt tonally <laughs> the right way to end that book. Mm-hmm. And yeah. again, as, as as Paul said, like when you're doing an OGN, when you're doing a standalone, that is a luxury that's afforded to you. You can right. put that ending how you want, assuming how your editor feels. Yeah. Uh 
because no one's going to come in and be like, yeah, well, they lived. The explosion was a dream <laughs> and the aliens are dead. And, and, you, know. and you were there and, and you were there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You wake up in a hospital bed. Oh, okay, great. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> So interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Like, I, I think that that split that you define there, Paul, between mm-hmm. like ending a run versus ending a a an OGN or a, a limited series or even an ongoing series in some ways is, is very, very different yeah. um, because trying to put your mark on something because like I keep trying to think <clears throat> like all the examples that I gave are really standalone, right? Like mm-hmm. they're OGNs or they're, they're long form runs that just ended on their own. Um, and like the closest that I got on my list to like a run would be X-Men Legacy by Cy Spurrier. I know I've been talking a lot about that on a show recently, but it's they keep letting him publish these comics about David Haller, and I can't stop reading them because I love what Cy Spurrier does with the character. But mm-hmm. X-Men Legacy, to me, takes place at a time in the X-Men universe where there is absolute chaos going on. And th- to me, this is the only book that made sense. And yet it is somehow the most chaotic of all the stories that are happening uh, in the sense that David Haller is destroying everything just to spite his own father who is dead. Um, I I really just love the way that Spurrier tells the story in that he's trying to circumnavigate all of the garbage that the X-Men are doing in order to try to establish the new normalcy of what mutantdom should be like in the world. And mm-hmm. that story, I don't know, to me is cutting through all the bullshit that really drags the x-men down and getting to the to the bone of like if someone could just do this thing everything would be right and that's like the basis of the story but the way that spurrier wraps up the book um again full spoilers for this book but i always recommend it to people and i think i've talked about it before like the book wraps itself up not by just completing a run on x-men legacy which is like a title of its own but spurrier undoing everything that david haller did (laughs) (laughs) like he spends this whole run trying to do all of this stuff to try to prevent the end of the world caused by himself and at the end of the day he comes to the conclusion that like if only he didn't exist this never would happen so he erases himself from existence Hmm. Uh, and it's so beautiful because it's a thing that is very apparent that needs to happen in the first issue of the book and yet he refuses he's like i can fix this i can do this and it's it's this wonderful story of this guy fighting against fate despite not believing in fate um and to me that's incredibly satisfying because one it shakes up the x-men universe for a minute and then completely resettles everything like someone stops the shaking and vibration abruptly um and it makes such a it makes such a wonderful end to me not just because narratively it's super satisfying but because it keeps itself contained to the point where I feel like I should be able to hand this book to somebody and say, like, you could read this and love it. But I, I don't know. Again, I, I always put the big, huge, monstrous asterisk next to this book, even though I want everybody to read it. But it, it's it's such a good thing because it, it works completely in the continuity. And after the book is done, none of it mattered, question mark. Right. It sounds <laughs> um, like, like it's, a, it's great. It sounds like someone read uh someone watched donnie darko because as you described yeah. that oh like, yeah i mean i get it like not everybody is stealing from everybody and not everybody is you know there there are no true original ideas but as you described that i was like shit did he just like watch donnie darko and just think that I mean, it sounds like it sounds like that which is actually kind of you know mm-hmm. you know not a bad thing um yeah. <clears throat> But yeah, I mean, like, to me, I think this, it kind of comes back, like, so far, it sounds like the common theme is, like, something satisfying that really wraps up a full narrative um, yeah. in a way that feels like it 
it jives with the pacing and the the core themes of a story. You know, I, I realize not all of us are sitting here and going, oh, yes, the theme of this book was definitely X. Like, <laughs> not all of us are doing that, but I do feel like if you read a book or you read a storyline or you read an arc or you read a run of somebody, you kind of get what the overall feel is. Like there is some yeah. consistency that you should be able to pull out of a really good story and that ending should be able to nail that whole feeling and wrap it up succinctly in those final issues. Um well, I do you, want to get to talking about like bad endings, but before we get yeah. to that part, I realize we're very early in the episode half. So, um, if you guys had <laughs> other examples, I mean, Paul, it sounds like you had something. I was going to say there's a couple examples, and again, these are stories I've probably talked about before on the the show, but they're my kind of my go to examples. I think of um, of examples where uh, there's a conclusion to a story arc, um, but the story keeps going, but it doesn't switch creative teams, but it puts the characters they've been following into a different position and. The one example I always think of is the Love Bunglers by Jaime Hernandez, uh, where you finally mm. see um, the main character of Love and Rockets, Maggie, finally sort of having a committed relationship with her on again, off again partner, Ray Dominguez. And I don't I actually don't want to spoil what happens to Ray in that story because it is so like heartbreaking. And it, yeah. the, the ending of the book does make me just start choking up when I think about it and every time I reread it. But it again, like uh, Jaime Hernandez doesn't end Love and Rockets there. He really could have ended Maggie's story with that conclusion, but instead he keeps going. And, you know, that was, I want to say that story came out almost a decade ago and it's still considered one of the best love and rocket stories, but Jaime has been able to keep that narrative going about Maggie and put her in a different position and develop her relationship with Ray Dominguez, even after having that sort of perfect ending with the end of the love bunglers. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I mean, love and rockets to me is, is still one of those things that I can't believe exists. And yet I'm just <laughs> extremely happy that it does, you know, like yeah. a story that has existed for so long with a consistency from the creator, writing these characters and making them and having them evolve, but without losing the center of who they are. Right. Yeah. Like of all the love and rocket stories that I've read, I, and admittedly, I haven't read a lot, but I've read some. Um, it it doesn't feel like there's any any tonal change. It's just different circumstances for the character. And it's yeah. like I could totally see why you, Paul, like have this almost like relaxing feeling, maybe reading that book. If I'm assuming you do just because it feels mm-hmm. like you can go back and you can revisit with friends and they're going to yeah. end up in different scenarios, but you're going to know who they are still at the end, even if they have changed a little bit. Yeah. And like, I remember when love bunglers came out, there was a lot of, you know, some speculation, like, is this going to be the end? Cause it is such a perfect conclusion to Maggie's story. But the thing is, mm-hmm. Maggie's been around for 35 years and, you know, the first Ma- love and rocket story, I think she's 15 or 16 and now she's, you know, 50. And, mm-hmm. you know, Jaime makes a point. He's like, no, it, she doesn't die. Like, she's still a lot around and he still wants to tell stories about her. So, you know, the the fact that the character keeps going even after what seems to be a perfect conclusion is kind of a testament to the strength of the character in the story. And again, like yeah. when you read a new Love and Rockets issue, it is like seeing old friends again. So, and you don't want that to end, you know. Um, Definitely. Oddly enough, a parallel example, I think, is uh, Judge Dredd. So, again, one oh, of my favorite things to talk about. Here we uh, go. <laughs> yeah. But I've talked about the Apocalypse War, which is um, a huge story from the, uh, I think it's only five years into Judge Dredd's existence. So, it's the early 80s. Um, but John Wagner and Carlos uh, Esguera tell this huge story about the Soviet megacity East Meg One um, attacking megacity one. And in that story, again, this is only about five years into the character's existence. Mega City One is almost completely destroyed. Like they almost completely destroy Mega City One. Like hundreds of millions of people are killed in the Apocalypse War, hence the name. But the end of the story is Judge Dredd, who's 
supposed to be the hero. He's the title character of this comic strip. He flies to East Meg One and destroys it. He kills a half a billion people. Oh my god. And you have a a situation Mm -hmm. where the main character of your story commits genocide. And that I mean, that's the conclusion of this huge story. But again, that character has been around for another 40 years since then. And it's mm-hmm. like that completely changes the way Judge Dredd operates as a character. And I really appreciate the fact Wagner and his were like, you know what? We're making him a fascist. We're making him a genocidal character, but he's still going to be, quote unquote, the hero of the strip. And it's such a ballsy move, you know, it's such like a gutsy thing oh, yeah. to do to change the character that fundamentally and still have it work. And again, Wagner does it again about 10 years ago when he writes a Day of Chaos story where 95% of the citizens of Mega City One are killed due to a, like a viral pandemic. And it's like, he kind of like, and it's John Wagner dusting his hands off, like, all right, now follow that up, you know, handing it off to another creative team. Like now what do you Challenging do? the next team, yeah. Yeah. And again, the character keeps going. So the, the, again, parallel to Love and Rockets, the fact that Judge Dredd is a character that's aged in real time as the, as the strip has existed, there's always places where you can have a quote unquote ending or ending to a story that puts him in a new position that still makes him engaging, right? Yeah. I and I feel that I feel that same way like as you're talking about this I'm trying to think of like where creative teams changed hands and it was like a big deal for a publisher and I I remember thinking about uh when I first was getting into comics a buddy of mine recommended I read Daredevil by Ed Brubaker oh, yeah. and his whole mm-hmm. pitch was you could read the previous storyline but all you need to know is that Brian Michael Bendis wrote Daredevil and the last thing he did before he handed it off to Ed Brubaker was he put Daredevil in jail and said good luck figure out how to get him out of this you know <laughs> yeah. and so what does mm-hmm. Brubaker do he does that he tells a whole wonderful like really really solid run of of Daredevil um, and of course what's the last thing that he does before he hands it off to Andy Diggle well he says now Daredevil's in charge of the hand he's no longer <laughs> fighting them he's in charge of them um, yeah. it's it's a really crazy story and I, I remember that run being super fun to read and it got me into daredevil it made me want to read more daredevil and i continued through andy diggle's run and fell off because it just became too much but like that that thing there where a creative team will be like we're going to do something crazy and the end of this arc or end of our run together after 40 issues or however long is going to be crazy good luck to the next team who's going to keep going Mm -hmm. with this ongoing series you know yeah yeah it's such an interesting dynamic when you deal with legacy characters like that, where it's like they can never, there can never be a last Daredevil story. There'll never be a last Batman story. So when you right. have the 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 keys to that that car, the to that ride, you kind of have to do something big, but also you can't really change that much. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a tough mm-hmm. tough thing to pull off. So when it do, it's done well, it's really exciting. Yeah. And I mean, we, we've seen a shift right, in comics where clearly Marvel and DC understand that like legacy numbering is only for a certain crowd. And so they get rid of the, the you know, the ongoing series and stuff. And instead we get like new new arcs and new runs of characters, even if they do eventually get the legacy numbering back. Right. Like, I think I remember during Charles Soule's run or maybe it was Chip Zdarsky's run. They like hit set the 700th issue of Daredevil. So they like had Daredevil number 26. And then underneath it was like legacy 701, you know, uh, which mm-hmm. is whatever but um i i do think that the way that they've changed it is the goal is to launch as many new number ones as possible and blah blah right. blah, blah and we, we get that's a whole other topic for us to discuss but <laughs> um i do think that that kind of changes how we approach this type of conversation where we say okay well let's talk a little bit more about endings of still ongoing characters but they get their own runs or they get their own things i know like I, I think about things like Immortal Hulk, right? Yeah. Like what a wonder or amazing run of that series um, or the incredible Hercules, right? That that series that ran through the the Hulk storyline, but they renamed it to Incredible Hercules um, is fantastic oh. run by by Greg Pak. 
and and I think Fred Van Lenty worked together on that book. And I remember it being like a again another reason for me to jump into this incredible or like the Hulk universe, even though I had no interest. Um, and then I fell off it. And the only reason I came back is because Al Ewing was writing Immortal Hulk, and I knew that that was going to be kind of a a standalone thing. And I mean, mm-hmm. personally, I think that that whole run was pretty fantastic. Like the ending was pretty solid and I don't want to dig into it because it's pretty recent. Yeah. Um, but like it's it's interesting to see how how comics have shifted in that direction to keep these legacy characters, but also try to t- like contain their storylines so that they, it seems it, quote unquote approachable to new readers. Uh, I yeah. mean, let's I won't bring up the Squirrel Girl fiasco, but we all know of the Squirrel Girl fiasco with like three new number ones in a year or something. But um, I don't <laughs> know, Nick, what, what did you have on your list? I want to hear some other books that you think have some solid endings. I mean, you've got Animal Man from DC's New 52, where Jeff Lemire got to draw the final issue uh, in addition to writing it. I thought that was honestly the perfect way to end the series, uh, a great way to really hammer home the emotional beats. Um, I'm sure some people were kind of surprised after a book that I think was largely people like Jean-Paul Leon and and Raphael Albuquerque at the end suddenly have Lemire on the last issue. But I, I, I think it was the right call. And, you know, the fact that DC let that happen, I think was, um, uh, I, I appreciate that in, in the so, same way having, uh, oh gosh, what is his name? Why am I blanking on this? Uh, All-Star Western. He drew the last issue of that, uh, gosh, and he did, uh, Parker. And why am I not, why am I blanking on? Oh, oh Darwin Cook. Darwin Cook. Darwin yeah. Cook. There we go. Another, another perfect ending to bring in yeah. one of the best artists, uh, on the final issue. But, uh, what, what were you saying, Paul? I was going to say, so, so when you're talking about Animal Man, I immediately think of the Morrison run. Sure. And <laughs> yeah. that's it, which is another great ending because that book ends with, you know, Animal Man meeting Grant Morrison, you know, the actual yeah. writer of the story and Morrison saying like, well, I need to have you suffer in during the story because that's what sells issues, blah, blah, blah. And the issue kind of ends with Morrison deciding like, oh, I can give Animal Man a happy ending. It's almost like too perfect of an ending. And of course, that's the last issue of that series, you know, that volume of Animal Man, but that's one of those endings like I couldn't imagine someone else trying to come and try to do another Animal Man story after that. So it's, I yeah. kind of think of like the fact Morrison put them themselves in their final issue of Animal Man and then Lemire, you know, not appearing as a character, but drawing the last issue of their run on Animal Man. This might be an interesting parallel that I just thought about as you were talking, Nick. Yeah, yeah. And and you're completely right. In in both situations, that's that's the end. And and I I don't know if dc at all considered following up these creative teams with other creative teams but i i think wiser minds prevailed and said like (laughs) you just you know well especially with animal man it's like go put him back in the closet or go put him back in the you know stow this in the file cabinet for 30 years or whatever and then we'll (laughs) we'll we'll drag this guy out again exactly Um, yeah yeah well, it's funny. So it's not he's not a legacy character. He's a character you can kind of do anything with and no one's going to care because he's just going to be forgotten about, like you said, for another decade before someone <laughs> right. does use him again. So, right. you know, he has more leeway with Animal Man than you do with, you know, Superman, obviously. Right. And, and Animal Man, if you want to get into it, is has probably reached a point where he's like he's not like he's not like D or F tier right anymore. Sure. I, I feel yeah. like Animal Man's like he's not. He's not obscure enough now, right? If we want to get into <laughs> hipster classifications, he's uh, he he doesn't yeah. fall into the quote you've probably never heard of him 
you know category right. anymore yeah. we we need we need someone more obscure um See, but i feel like i want to say but, that about like a booster gold or or something yeah. and people will get up in arms about that because <laughs> i don't i have no idea who booster gold is is there a difference between ted cord and booster is there two people who's the blue beetle well, isn't there a difference that's, that's cord the, uh, blue that's beetle is cord, cord. Yeah. See, this is uh see guys, this Uh-oh. is where I, I get about things. <laughs> and there are so many angry chat. Danny in the chat. So <laughs> and, and yeah. Booster Gold and, and Blue Beetle aren't uncool. The people who like them are I mean, they're they're really uncool. <laughs> I mean both the both the characters and the fans are uncool. And I, I think see, they I both see. acknowledge and know that. And Danny can probably oh, no. Like people, I think the appeal is that they're both grade A dweeb characters, um, but but that's different <laughs> from being an un like unheard know, of. Know. You know, there there are classifications to being um, lame DC characters, right, Danny? I think that there's <laughs> oh, Danny, uh, yeah, yeah Danny's <laughs> out of here. He's gone. <laughs> Um, <laughs> glad this is the last step. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're this burning all we're, the we're bridges getting... on the way out. So yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. That's right. That's okay. right. We're we're uh, we're taking them all down as we exit well, before, the town. <laughs> before we commit any more arson here, I do want to uh, talk about I think the other side of things, Paul, that you pointed out um, about the idea of stories that are self-contained. We kind of talked a little bit about some because I personally think that like a an Animal Man in both contexts, the Morrison or the Lemire run, are kind of self-contained. Yeah. Um, but I think there are more specific things that i think you were getting at like ogns like on my list i have nimona by nd stevenson um like that book to me it's, it's a strip comic but it does have a complete narrative that i think follows the whole story and to me that feels like it's 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 a one and done type story but it also feels very satisfying in the way that it ends and that we do get a full story arc we do get a full character progression and it's done in 280 pages or however long you know it takes and i think that that is a feat in itself because I think with com- you know with prose books, 280 pages is a lot of time to work. With comics, you have to be really concise about your storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. And I think with a strip comic like Nimona, you have to be even more precise about how you like which stories you decide to tell about that character because as much as you want to tell fun, goofy little bits um, every once in a while, um, it does behoove you to try to get through a narrative in some capacity and grow the character enough to get to an end where it's not just like Garfield where you're just like that's it that's the end of these 400 strips we'll see you in the next one you know yeah Garfield's been telling a very long canonical story <laughs> and if you just haven't been paying attention that's oh, okay that's that's on you that's not on us <laughs> yeah that's true uh, that's true if you pay attention to the 56th time when he mentions that he hates Mondays and you look at his coffee cup and there's a logo on it, that clearly is a callback to when he, you know, talks about how much he hates Mondays about six. Uh, look, Paul, did you have any examples? The uh, Jim Davis verse isn't for everybody. Okay. Yeah. All right. Jesus Christ. Oh boy. Look, everyone has a number one first appearance of normal. All right. It's right. Yeah. Right. Cut it out, framed it. Um. Anyway, uh, the one book that did come to mind when I was thinking about uh, OGN with a satisfying conclusion was Ghost World by Daniel Klaus, mm. uh, which again yeah. was published originally as part of uh, Daniel Klaus's uh, eight ball comics. It was serialized, but most people have read it as a collected edition Ghost World mm-hmm. uh, trade paperback. And the ending of that story is like so just like the story itself, you know, is Daniel Klaus. It's satirical. It's like a riff on sort of 90s punk and hipster culture. Uh, but at the end of the story, you kind of have a story about these two 
uh, friends from high school that sort of fall out. Their friendship kind of just falls apart in a way that they mm-hmm. can't really put their finger on. And you don't really know. There's no distinctive thing that happens that causes them to have a fight or fall out of their friendship. But there's a great moment where Enid Coleslaw is seeing her friend Rebecca through like a window. She's eating dinner or having lunch with someone else. And there's a nice little goodbye that Enid says, even though Rebecca can't hear her. She's like, you're going to grow up to be a beautiful woman someday. And then she just kind of leaves on a, it's like a ghost bus. You know, the bus picks her up at a stop that was supposedly didn't exist anymore. And it's a weird mm-hmm. sort of satisfying conclusion that you don't know what can happen next, but it's almost fine that way. It kind of ends in a, I'm trying to think the way, way to put it. It's, it's an ethereal sort of open-ended ending that I find very, very perfect for that story in those characters. Yeah. What's interesting about the end of that book is that if there was any sort of finality, it would almost be a disservice to the story that was being told. Exactly. You know, like yeah. everything about that book is so, so fleeting. It's so like everything that I feel like teenagers who want to be cool try to do, <laughs> right? Where you act like you don't care and you just don't give a shit. And so you do all this crazy stuff, seeking extreme judge or seeking for people to approve you, but you don't want to acknowledge that. And so like her leaving like that in the end is is really like doing something actually maybe for the sake of her own self for the first time rather than to you know appeal to someone else and Klaus doesn't say that but like that was my reading of it and (laughs) i i do appreciate that you know that that the book is so like undecided about how it ends but it's up to the reader to do that rather than putting a final point on and adding narration that's like and she went off to college and blah you know that would have just destroyed the book i think absolutely yeah that's a good way to put it yeah the sort of the open-endedness of you, the reader, being able to decide what happens next or what happened to them. Uh, yeah, that kind of makes it more satisfying than a, a finite conclusion would be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nick, did you have any like any OGNs or anything like that that you were thinking about or short like self-contained stories? Yeah, I mean, you've probably never heard of it, uh, but it's called Pulp. Basically won every <laughs> award of the past, I don't know how many years. It's probably still going to win more awards this year for some reason. I'm sure it's got <laughs> on some some ballots for one reason or another. But I was rereading that book and the ending of that is just so perfect where you have the main character reliving and sort of the whole life flashes before your eyes, uh, reliving some of those events of when he was uh, younger and in Mexico with that weird sort of sepia tone. Like it almost feels like it's, it feels like a color, like a coloring book that then Jacob Phillips like put some washes over. Yeah. Um, but just that recapturing of that and like the only distinctive detail being that red shirt that the character wears. And mm-hmm. then in the final mm-hmm. panel, uh, he he doesn't have the red shirt, obviously, as it switched to, switches to modern day. But of course, his shirt is like very, very red as it's now soaked with blood and just sort of this this weirdly satisfying moment where he looks at the entirety of his life and, and thinks back to those moments where he, you know, was an outlaw and, and a vigilante in the past. And then he's reflecting on this moment at the end where he's sort of stepping into that role again but maybe in a way that's more meaningful or less like selfish i guess you could say um mm-hmm. yeah and and that ending just felt like perfect to me for that book i think that that's yeah. really one of the best endings that brubaker and phillips have done for any of their stuff and i think because it's Definitely. a it's a sort of a standalone ogn um 
you know, I, I, I love the reckless books they're doing, but that's obviously a continuing series. So right. you know, we haven't had like a definitive ending to that character, but pulp is such a well done, concise, self-contained story. That's definitely one of the best endings that they've done as a creative team, I think. Yeah. And for a book that's so short, it really works. I, I, I usually I feel like shorter OGNs sometimes still feel rushed, right? Mm-hmm. But with pulp, it's definitely not it doesn't feel rushed. It feels like the right length. Any longer, it would have felt dragging. Any shorter, it would have felt rushed. But like they really, really hit the mark on that book, um, which again, uh, Nick, you said it. They got a bunch of awards, but like rightfully so. It's not like it was <laughs> yeah. undeserved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Let's let's be clear. Uh, they they earned all of those awards, but uh, it definitely. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's perfect. If you haven't picked up a Phillips and and. Phillips, Phillips Jr. and and Brew Baker book. Uh, <laughs> this might be, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is yeah. probably the place to start. I think yeah. so. Um. Well, I guess like, you know, I do want to kind of wrap things up here in a second. I was curious to know if there are, <laughs> if you know, if comic endings are somehow different than other media. I don't know if that's true. It was kind of just a, a bold question I had out there, but I. I was thinking, like, are there examples of maybe bad stories with good endings or good stories with bad endings? I mean, I can think of a couple off the top of my head of the latter, but I was curious to know what you guys were thinking. If Or maybe we don't have to get specific if we don't want to badmouth any comics. I totally understand. Um, yeah. But I, I was curious if you guys were thinking about any of that stuff as well. Um, I'm Honestly, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I was kind of focusing on satisfying endings as I was putting my yeah. notes together. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess off the top of my head, I can't think of any specific examples. As soon as we finish, uh, recording, I'll think of a bunch. So maybe I can, uh, right. Keep that up because I hate comic books is starting next week. That's what the new show is. (laughs) Spoilers. (laughs) Danny just mentioned heroes in crisis. I do believe that's a booster gold blue beetle centric narrative. So maybe that, so it doesn't exist is what you're saying. (laughs) 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 Um, yeah, I, and again, I don't want to necessarily spend time here, bad mouthing comics, but like there, you know, there are books out there that I feel like really rope you in with really cool ideas. Um, and they don't fully deliver on them, even in the end. Um, you know, I, I, again, I, I have a couple that come to mind, but I know that we're, we're going to set the world on fire if I start to talk, uh, talk about them. So, um, you have to come to the hangout on Saturday to hear what I really think uh, about the endings of some of these comics. But, uh, yeah, I guess, um, I don't know to wrap things up then, uh, I don't know, Nick, you have any final thoughts? No, I mean, I, I think you perhaps wrongly gave me more than enough time to go through all of my thoughts. So uh, okay, I've, good, I've good, covered good, good. everything. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, anything from you then? Uh, no, I think, uh, I think this is a good way to end the show, uh, literally. So uh, yeah, I think I've said <laughs> yes. everything I have to. Absolutely perfect. I hope that you out there, the listener, have felt satisfied over these 333 episodes. Um, I hope that this is the final episode that really wrapped things up narratively for you. Uh, we really appreciate everyone taking time to deal with this really extremely long form improv show that we've been putting together. Um, 333 episodes plus minisodes. It's been a it's been a work of love and labor but i guess if the show isn't over for some reason next week maybe we do come back maybe there is a 334th episode uh the show potentially would be me and kara and renee talking with special guests chris and aubrey editors of the upcoming kickstarter scott snyder presents tales from the cloakroom so if you're interested in that maybe you could show up for next week's episode come and tune in with us on live on discord or you can follow us all on twitter you can follow nick at death star plans you can follow paul at oh hi paul you can follow me at mike rappin 
And you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok if you want to check out all that old archive footage of things, um, you know, because this show's no longer going to be a thing. This episode first aired on Patreon and is possible because of our wonderful patrons. Join today for exclusive series like IRCB Movie Club, Saga of Saga, and more. Join now at patreon.com forward slash IRCB podcast. And if you're thinking, well, geez, why would I join if there isn't any more content? Um, just don't think about that. Just uh, <laughs> The money still goes into our account. We've still this made show, some perfectly listen, good content. You probably show, haven't gotten through all of it. This show is ending, but be- a better Batmobile will continue right. on. Yeah. I'm just, let's, we'll say that. The show is yeah, ending. Okay. The Patreon stays open. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, if you haven't already, uh, please rate and review our show. I think five stars is a fair rating. You can do that on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Yes, they have ratings over there. Or wherever you listen to podcasts, I'm sure they have a rating system set up. Um, I think we deserved it, uh, the five-star rating you're going to give us. So Definitely. Thanks. Please also join the IRCB Discord community to chat comics and more. Plus, you can listen live to our apps. Well, not anymore. Uh, <laughs> as we record every week. Well, <laughs> we used to. Check the link in our Discord uh, for the show notes. So You can at least come to the Hangout at the Discord. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you can show up on the Discord and just pretend that episodes are being recorded live, and you can just yeah. talk along um, with yourself. I do that all the time. So. <laughs> uh, podcasts grow best when spread by word of mouth, so why not tell your friends, family, and local comic shop about how great of a podcast this was? <laughs> Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music, and they'll continue to do our music you know, if we ever produce some more episodes, maybe next week we'll have a new one. Uh, Xander's a very cool guy who edits the show. We can't thank him enough. He's a wonderful person. He's our editor. I want to say thank you to Paul and Nick for being here today. I want to say thank you to everyone hanging out with us in the chat today. Uh, Kev and Danny and Aaron and Jeff and Paul and, you know, all you wonderful folks for hanging out. You're, you're just wonderful. I want to say thank you to people out there for listening. You are also amazing. Thank you for hanging out with us every week. You're the absolute best. And until next time, whenever next time is, comics are good and so are you. Yeah.